So <laughs> this, this session we're talking about making the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, it's amazing to me the number of people that I talk to just in day-to-day life who have never read the Old Testament or who have read pieces, parts of the Old Testament. I had one conversation um, with a, the wife of a Lutheran pastor who said, I don't waste my time in the Old Testament. I like to read the New Testament where Jesus is described. And I said, and you don't know that he's actually talked about a whole lot in the Old Testament. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I have actually found that my understanding of the New Testament has become abundantly more fulfilling and beautiful the more I understand the Old Testament. Yes. And, and coming at it from the beginning forward is a very different picture than coming at it from the end back. And, and it's, you know, there's lots of areas where I'm still working through and studying, but I want to kind of talk about the overall idea of, of connecting the two parts. Um, a lot of this uh, is going to be from a section in a book, and I... I to bring it with me, but it's a book called Twelve Words Every Christian Should Know, and because it's twelve words that Jesus knew, and twelve words that describe what he did, um, and so in in this section, it's the chapter was on halacha, which is derived from the Hebrew word to go or to walk, but it really means like a way of life. I mentioned in my first session, the Lord puts before Israel and before all of us. Two choices. One path leads to destruction and death, because it is a walk away from him. One path leads to life, because it is a walk with him. And we get to choose. That's the amazing thing about free will. We choose which path we're on. And when we are walking with him, it looks a certain way. And when we are walking against him, it looks a different way. So in Judaism, the concept of halakha is the legal side of Judaism. God gave commands, and uh, the, ancient, the ancient sages and rabbis wrestled with what they meant and how to apply them. The Sanhedrin was charged with giving rulings on how the commands that came through Moses applied to disputes that arose among the people. If you remember when Moses' father-in-law came to him and said, you're going to be overwhelmed, you are ruling on every little thing that happens, you know, choose, choose the 70 leaders, let them handle the little stuff, they can bring the stuff they don't know to you. That was the the beginning of this concept. And, uh, and they were charged with saying, well, God said this, your situation is this, here's what applies. Um, essentially, and I mentioned this in the last session, they, they were like our, uh, our Supreme Court. And what's beautiful about it is they had their majority rulings and they included their minority rulings and they had a lot of arguments back and forth. And on a lot of things, there were two accepted schools of thought. For example, how many children does it take to go forth and multiply. <laughs> One leader said, two, that produces you and your husband, you, you've multiplied, there's, there's a replacement for each of you. Another leader said, one girl and one boy and you keep trying till you get both of them. Now, might not surprise you to find that the poor people preferred the two. <laughs> And the people who could afford to were fine with the, the one girl and one boy. So, so there's a lot within the rulings and within the Talmudic writings, there's a lot of 
it's, it's actually quite beautiful and a lot of, of interesting dialogue going on there. Um, the, the Chumash is, uh, it's actually the book of the Torah and the different readings with the commentary in it. And uh, one of the, the quotes that I pulled from there in the commentary says, a judge who rules correctly is considered a partner in creation. And one who rules corruptly is a destroyer of God's world. So it was a very serious charge that they had. It was much more serious than our Supreme Court. <laughs> it was interpreting God's word and how it applies to man. And that's from page 14 on the civil law. Um, and again, there was not always agreement. It's very common to find, well, Rabbi X says this, and Rabbi Y says this, and still Rabbi Z says this, and, but not many people listen to him or whatever you know, in the commentary. Um, and it was kept oral because it was believed that to write things down would cause it to lose fluidity and flexibility. It was eventually written down when Rome in Judea behaved so that those who might not or who knew might not survive. So in other words, when Rome was go, you know, in and doing their thing, the leaders said, okay, we have got to write this down because we're going to be scattered and nobody else knows this stuff. So they wrote it down so that the average person could have it. Um, in scripture, I want to read a couple of, you know, a few verses to you that in Hebrew have this word halacha or the, or the foundation for it. Isaiah 30, 20 through 21 says, this is the way, walk ye in it. 2 Samuel 12, 2, um, when Samuel came to confront David about Bathsheba, his story involved a traveler, or a person was on a road, and these are the things he did. Um, Psalm 143, 8, cries out to God, show me the way I should go. Show me the path to walk. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Be on that path with God. So, summing up the Torah, a couple of verses I pulled out to kind of highlight. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct thy paths. Proverbs 3.6. So that's, that's the pure concept of halakha. If, if you are honoring God in everything you do, he will direct you on his path. Amen. And then in Mark 12, 30 through 31, it says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. But lest you think that Jesus was saying something new, that is also found in Leviticus 19.18. He was quoting the Torah. Another concept that we find with crossover is the idea of circumcision of the heart. And this is one that led to a lot of the, the issues that Paul was writing about. Um, a lot of people will hear the term Judaizer, and in this day and age think, oh, anybody who does anything the Jews do, and that's not what it meant in Paul's day. What Paul was dealing with was the issue of having Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers, and the Jewish, some of the Jewish believers believing that in order to be part of the community, you needed to convert to Judaism. And the final act of that was circumcision. Paul was saying God called them as non-Jews. 
God accepted them as non-Jews. God saved them as non-Jews. Clearly, this is not a prerequisite. That's the issue that was the debate of the Judaizers. Um, but what Paul said in response to it, in response to this issue, is for he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God, Romans 2.29. So the point that he makes in Romans is that the circumcision of the flesh was always supposed to lead to the circumcision of the heart. So if God has chosen to circumcise the heart without the circumcision of the flesh, why do you need to go back and do that? that that's the argument he was making. But he was not making a new argument. Because in Deuteronomy 36, we hear the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So back in Deuteronomy, they understood that the point was the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the flesh declared you part of the, the Jewish community, but circumcision of the heart, even in Old Testament times, is what sets you apart as part of the kingdom that goes beyond this world. So the goal of, of everything in your path and in your walk is to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to observe his commandments, his decrees, and his ordinances, according to Deuteronomy 30.16. Um, there is an issue of um, what it means, to the, the challenge of autonomy um, with regards to the halakhic walk. And, and I, I forgot to mention earlier, but if you have any questions, please just ask me because I'm one of those people who if people make me wait till the end, I don't hear what they said when I have questions because <laughs> I'm trying to remember my questions. So just interrupt me, we'll be fine. Um, Chief Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Sachs presented the idea that the halakhic view says we are born into obligations. And that autonomy is the idea that each person is the author of his moral commitments. So this is, this is kind of the Hebraic concept of free will. And, and I, I just, I love this idea and, and I actually, first encountered the most beautiful description of it in a book called uh, Every Thinking Jewish Teenager's Guide to Life that I bought for my son. <laughs> we were reading through it. Um, and he talked about the point of free will, not just the concept, because a lot of times we tend to get into this debate with, with our Calvinist brothers and sisters over free will versus predestination, and we have all these big words. And the Hebraic concept is that God has a path. You have the free will to be on that path with him or not. That is your only choice. In every moment, in every action, in everything you do, you either align with God or you don't. That is free will. And whether you were born into a family where you are going to be taught that, like the Jewish son who was circumcised at birth, he still had... The, the, the obligation to take that on for himself at the age of 13 or to reject it and walk away. Those of us born, you know, those born outside of that faith can continue rejecting it or can attach themselves. <clears throat> those born within a Christian home, you have the privilege of being raised with an understanding of God. Those born outside of a Christian home 
can learn about it at any time. Everyone at all times has the opportunity to align with God or not in their actions and in their lives. And so the idea is that, and, and this brought um, some of Paul into beautiful clarity, because the way that the rabbi explained it is everyone has before them a point of free will. That is the point that you have become aware you have a moral choice to make. If you make the choice against God, that becomes easier to do. Every time you make that choice against God, it becomes easier. If you make the choice to align with what God says, that also becomes easier. And eventually, you move on to a new issue. So he explained that there are points of free will that are below our, our point, and there are those that are above. There are things that we would never dream of doing. Most of us would never dream of killing somebody because they cut us off in traffic. Obviously, that is not the case for everyone because it happens. So that might be below your free will. Your free will is whatever you are wrestling with right now. Once you master that and cause that to submit to the word of God, it drops below your point of free will and you're faced with a new issue. So when Paul says he's always wrestling and he does what he doesn't want to do and he doesn't do what he wants to do, he's not saying, for my whole life I've had this one issue and I can't get over it. He's saying, I am constantly bringing that flesh into submission to whatever that point of free will I'm wrestling with is. Which I think is very freeing to people who have fought for years. Because the, the lesson is, you know, if you sometimes do the right thing and you sometimes don't do the right thing, you, you stay at that place. When you can consistently start doing the right thing, you move beyond it. It stops being your issue. So this idea, this halakhic view that we are born into obligations, meaning we are born called to walk according to God's word. That is our obligation. We are born to that. Yet it is our choice whether or not we take that on ourselves and whether or not we do that. Um, in the commands in the gospel, uh, we find this concept of halacha uh, with John the Baptist's parents are described as walking in all the commandments, Luke 1.6. So of course you know that that amazing prophet is going to be born to people who were able to teach him what he needed to know. You know, he wasn't born to Joe and Sally down by the train tracks. He was born to you know, people from the priestly line who knew their stuff and were going to train him in this. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, John 15, 10. And this is a picture of walking with him. You know, the, the word Christian, mean, meaning follower of Christ, it's, and, he, and he talked about this this morning, but it's, you're following him where he's going. It's, it's very much a walking on the path with him. And there is going to be sacrifice involved. I don't know. Somehow people sometimes get the idea that, um, you know, it's all, it's all happy, happy. You know, yay, I'm a Christian. Woo! And, and they're like, why am I struggling? Well, did you read any of that? <laughs> I think there were beheadings and stonings, and I'm pretty sure that it wasn't a happy, happy party all the time for the disciples. And so when we choose to follow, we can't go, well, I thought this was going to be all fun and games. What do you mean? No, you're follow he went to the cross, for goodness sake. Where do you think we're following him? And it's his walk 
It's the path. So it means the way. The New Testament was written by Hebrew minds, and the early believers were Jewish. Now, there is, a lot of people will say, except Luke, and then there are actually scholars now saying, eh, maybe Luke too. So, <laughs> but 99.9% .9 of the authors of the entire Bible were Jewish. They may have been believers in Messiah as we get to the New Testament, but they were Jewish. They had a Jewish mind. They had Jewish thoughts. They, they thought in a, in a Hebraic way. One of the big differences between the Greco-Roman thought and the, um, the Hebraic thought is Greco-Roman thought is hierarchical. And we talked about that in the, um, the, the husband and wife uh, in trying to understand Ephesians 5 is that Greco-Roman says hierarchy. Hebraic thought says circular. No hierarchy. Because there is no hierarchy in the Godhead. You know, it's, it's, if they're all one, they're not competing for authority. And so this, this, this Hebraic thought is a really important, and, and the circular thought is really important for understanding some of the concepts that we encounter that become problematic in a lot of our lives and a lot of, in a lot of church teachings um, if we try to make them hierarchical. If we step back and turn them into a circular thought, we go, oh, that's beautiful. Oh, you're saying do this and do this. Oh, okay. That's good. That's good stuff. Um, originally, the believers were called followers of the way, Acts 9-2. They were, they were literally the halakhic followers of Jesus. They, under, they followed the rabbi Jesus' teachings on how to live and how to understand the Torah. Um, and there is Messianic Halakha, which is um, New Testament Halakha. The idea, the word walk is very, found very often in the New Testament. If you just go to blueletterbible.com or .org and, and look for walk, you get thousands and thousands and thousands of things. Um, a righteous man walks in the fear of the Lord, Acts 9.31. Paul's churches were told to walk in the footsteps of the faith, Romans 4.12. Walk according to this rule, he says in Galatians 6.16. Walk by the same rule, he says in Philippians 3.16. Um, but it is halakha without legalism. And, and this is one of the things, a lot of times the, the modern Christian mind hears commands, rules, and we start thinking, oh, it's legalistic, it's legalistic, I want to be free. But we can only have freedom within boundaries. It's like a budget. You can't control your money by just spending because you want to buy stuff. If you don't have a budget, you're not really in control of your money. And, and people who set up budgets then go, oh, I'm free to spend this money I set aside and not feel guilty about it because it's there and I know it's for this. And oh, that feels good. <laughs> Instead of, oh gosh, I hope I don't bounce the rent check because I bought this. It's a very different freedom. So. Having, these, having instructions from God is about how to stay on his path. That is not legalism. Legalism is the idea that you, by your actions, can somehow earn salvation. That you can do something better than what Messiah did for you. You can get yourself into, into God's grace by acting right or behaving right. It is somewhat, and this is a gray line, if your thinking is, well, God did, you know, Jesus did that for me. I've got to repay him. You're leaning towards legalism. If you said, Jesus did that for me, 
I want to do this out of a loving response, that's grace. That's beautiful. Faith unto works. Say, oh, he saved me. This is how he told me to live. I can do that. Because I assume that the creator of the universe, the creator of my life, the savior of my soul, wants good for me and not bad. Otherwise, why, why, why am I with him? <laughs> if I think he wants bad for me, I've made a really weird alignment in my life. So once I understand, oh, he wants good for me, the instructions, the commands, the things he tells me, these are for my good. I still may have to wrestle with doing something, but it's a very different... This is, this is one of the ways that with our doctrine of uh, entire sanctification, this is one of the ways that I have come to view it, is with that point where you understand and you trust that God loves you so much and he cares for you so much and everything he did for you was so out of love that in response you go, I get it, I'm done fighting, I'll do whatever it is. I may have to understand it, I may have to question it, I may have to wrestle with it a little bit, but I want it. I want that thing that you say is good for me, not what the world does. And that's when we move to that next level. You know, everybody who's married in here, you probably had some point where you suddenly stopped thinking of yourself as a husband or a wife and started realizing you just were. Do you know what I mean? Does anybody, am I not alone? Because <laughs> there was, you know, in the early, in the early time, you know, I'd had to remind, I've, my middle name is Marie, and my maiden name was McCoy. And for the first year of my marriage, all of my checks were signed with my middle initial because I started writing my last name, and then I had to change it. <laughs> so, and, and, and there were times in the early years of the marriage where I would go, okay, I'm doing this because I'm a wife, and this is what I should do, and I'm going to do this. And then at some point, I'm like, hey, we're in a groove, we're just married, this is good, I got it, I trust him, I love him, of course I'll do that for you, babe, you say you don't want that, I'll never make it again, and it became easy, and it's the same way with God, when he says, I don't want you to do this, and you trust him, you go, okay, not going to do it, you may have to get to that point where it comes up, and you go, no, said I'm not going to do that, but you no longer want the things that the world puts before you, you go, no, 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 I got something better, I got something better, so Paul's arguments are very reflective of this idea. Um, Jesus had no patience with setting the traditions of men above the word of God. Um, one example is Mark 7, 8. And so this is, this is where knowing what the Bible really says from beginning to end is crucial for each of us. We may not be able to understand all of it in our lifetime, but it's our job to dig into it because nobody's going to get to the Lord and say, you know, when he says, why did you, when my pastor said, my neighbor told me, you know, what did you, why did you do it? Why didn't you dig into his word? And so we, if, because if we don't, then we are ripe for the traditions of men guiding our life. Because if somebody tells you, well, it's, the Bible says that, oh, I better do it. No, you better be like the Bereans and go make sure the Bible said that. Because that's what the Bereans did. They knew their Torah. They knew their first five books of the Bible. And when Paul sat down with them and showed them this salvation gospel message in the Old Testament, they went, oh, we want this. This is good. So we need to make sure we're following the word of God and not the traditions of men. Um, one of the things that's important to remember in Paul's letters is that the word law from the Greek is used by Paul to refer to legal laws of Rome, Halakhic laws of the rabbis that had become a burden. 
halakhic laws that hadn't become a burden, and God's law, <laughs> or the Torah, which again was called the way. So when he says law, you've got to look at what he's saying around it, because Paul will say in one verse, you know, I hate the law, I love the law in the next verse, and you're like, he's either schizophrenic or I'm missing something. And, and it's missing which he's talking about. He hated the laws that burdened people. He hated the laws of man that obligated people to things that God hadn't ever intended for them. He loved God's law that taught about Messiah, that taught us how to live, that showed us what we're supposed to do, that gave us the way to walk with God. And so these two things, it's not law and grace that are in opposition to each other. It's God's path, the world's path. You can be legalistic on God's path, or you can be full of grace on God's path, but if you're on God's path, it looks like something. There are things that he says, this is the boundary of the path. You can be legalistic not on God's path. <laughs> you can set all sorts of rules for yourself that have nothing to do with God. Or you can be all free and happy off God's path. So it's, that's not it. What, what, usually if you're, an, if you're a legalistic non-Christian, you're going to be a legalistic Christian. <laughs> You're a, uh, if you're a free-living non-Christian, you're going to be a free-living you know, Christian. And, and so it's okay. You know, if you want to live by rules, that is wonderful. Just remember that they are the boundaries, and they alone are not saving you. If you need those structures, have those structures. If something speaks to you, if you are convicted by something, if something edifies your walk, do it religiously. Just don't judge others who might not have that same level of conviction in that area. Does that make sense? You know, I love how every person who writes a book about how, how to fix your life with God, it's always whatever their gifting is. So, <laughs> you know, because I assure you, if I got up an hour before my family every day and, and stayed up an hour late and just kneeled for two hours to pray, um, yeah, I'd be in a world of hurt and nothing would get done. So <laughs> it's got to look, you know, it's got to... It, but that's, that's what fit that person's life or that person's life. You know, my life, it, it's, a, it's a, different, a different rhythm. So there's a concept that's really important when you're looking at the connections and the, and the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's called the hedge. Um, it was created with the best of intentions, and it was created by the Sanhedrin and enforced by the Pharisees, and the idea being if you don't violate the hedge laws, you will never come close to violating God's laws. Okay, so, so here, is, here is Torah, everything that God actually commanded. And here is the hedge made up of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. You know, even in Torah, there's the, the count is 613, but none of the, not all of them ever applied to any one person. If you were not a woman, the laws for women didn't apply to you. If you were not a man, the laws for men didn't apply to you. If you were not a Levitical priest serving in the temple, those laws didn't apply to you. If you weren't engaging in animal husbandry and, and, and you know, working with the animals to, to grow your ranch, that didn't apply to you. So when it gets down to what actually applies to any one person, it's, it, it's actually a pretty reasonable number of guidelines. And a lot of them are, if you have an open wound, don't spit on people. I'm good with that. Uh, <laughs> If you're contagious, stay away from people. Again, that gets my vote. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of just basic common sense and wisdom 
and, and the things that apply to you, you do. The hedge is like thousands of laws beyond that. So if you've got an open wound, it describes how, how big it has to be and, and how far away from other people you have to stand. And, and at what point along the road do you have to yell, unclean, unclean, or, or whatever it is. You know, it, it's, it's really a burden. The idea, though, if you, if, you can, if you can follow all of these laws, you will never violate this. The problem is, if you are over here, you are not close to knowing or wrestling with this. And this is what matters. And God desires that we wrestle with his commands. He desires that we know them and we understand them and we understand what he's trying to teach us. And if we're out here and, and you know, take this, make this Bible and make this doctrine, church teaching. It might be good doctrine. But if it keeps you from really understanding what's in God's word, it's not good for you. It's not good for you to approach it that way. Now, if you, the way I came to the Church of the Nazarene, went to Fuller Theological Seminary, studied everything that was out there, came out Nazarene. <laughs> it's an expression. It is the closest New Testament church expression of what I believe the Bible teaches. And that do, Does what? anybody else feel like shouting? <laughs> <laughs> and so people, people who are born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene sometimes struggle because they know all the doctrine, but they might not really understand where it's coming from. That doesn't mean they go, you know, that you the answer isn't to run off and not be Nazarene, but the answer is to wrestle and make sure that you understand and make sure that you know where that idea comes from. Make sure that you know you that you agree with that doctrinal foundation for something. So he wants us to wrestle with it. One of the things that Paul talks about um, that gets a lot of misunderstanding is the curse of Torah or the curse of the law. God's design includes what to do when there is a violation, because there will be. An aspect of this just is inherently grace. Because God says, I know you're going to screw up. Let's fix it in advance. <laughs> he says, you're going to mess up. Take this sacrifice. You're going to violate this. I know it's going to happen. Bring this sacrifice. And once a year, let's all get together. We'll have Yom Kippur. Put everybody's sins on, on that scapegoat. Run him out. Kill him on your behalf. You're good. Because he knows, first of all, these are all pictures of things that Messiah would do. But he knew it was going to happen. He doesn't say, here's all these commands. Don't ever violate them. Period. The end. And if you do, too bad. He says, this is what you do. But that concept of requiring a sacrifice for each sin was called the curse of Torah. Your sin required death. That's the curse. Your sin warrants your death and requires the death of an innocent. So Jesus took the curse of the law upon himself when he died for our sins. In Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. This is the curse of the law. The law is not a curse. The curse of the law is that violation of it requires death. We're good because Jesus 
did that. He fulfilled that. The reason it was required is because it was a picture of what Messiah would do. Because God knew, God put that plan in place to redeem man, and then he gave hints, he gave pictures, he says, look, this is what it's going to look like, and then when Jesus came, sure enough, that's what he did. That's why it was there. So the question to ask is, are we freed to or from? Because a lot of people will say, we're free from the law, as if the law were bad. But Romans 6.22 says, but now you have been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. That's why we can have a holiness doctrine. We're free of sin. I want an amen. <laughs> because we are free from, we're free from sin. You can walk in a glorious life because you are freed from sin. Amen. That changes the whole game. It's all different. Not the walk. Because we're freed to holiness. Well, what is holiness? It's not what we make it up to be. It's what God says to do. We're no longer slaves to sin, which frees us to walk halacha. It frees us to walk God's teaching. It frees us to walk God's word out in our lives. When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, we're free to do it. When he says, you know, worship me and love me only and don't get tripped up by those idols, we can go, okay, I can do that. In the beginning, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3.22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, able to know good and evil. Okay, so right, I, just, I do want to point out a little side note. The serpent didn't completely lie to Eve about that because he said, When you eat, you will be like God. And God said, They have become like me. They have become like, well, us, because God is plural. Able to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then God put him out of the garden, not to punish them, out of mercy. Because if they stayed in the garden and ate from the tree of the life, they were never going to come back from that. So he took them out of that. And then he gave his Torah through Moses, teaching men how to live. And then his living Torah came in Jesus and properly interpreted Torah and gave us the example of living it out. So our halakha, Paul and the many authors of the New Testament undertook helping their generation to understand what halakha or walking out God's word was to look like in their life. And we can take their teachings and apply them to our life as they fit and use them as guidance where we face things that they didn't anticipate. So rather than saying, you know, this thing that speaks to a specific thing going on in the Roman culture, this is how we're saying, respond to that. We don't need to come along and say, we should be living like we're under the Roman culture so that then we can do what Paul said to do. But we can take how Paul approached that and say, this is how we should approach this similar issue in our lives.